Osinski's Inner Circle. I'm Bobby Osinski, and this is a show all about music, music production, and the music business. My guest today is Music Collectibles creator, Tony Simmerman. But first of all, Paola, believe it or not, is still with us. Billboard just ran an article that in 2021, a major label initiated a radio promotion campaign for a song from a popular rock act. And that involved payments to an independent radio promoter that was tied to two radio stations, WXRV in Boston and WNCS in Montpelier, Vermont. Now, as soon as that payment was made, all of a sudden there was a marked increase in the spins of the song. After a little more digging, Billboard found 14 more invoices that came from three different anonymous industry executives. These invoices were from 2021 and 2022, and they detailed payments from labels to that same indie promoter, and as a result, increased spins at several specific stations. Now, in the past, these payments were a lot, but not in this case. Payments to the promoter ranged from several hundred dollars to about $1,500, but every time a payment was made, there are more increases in radio plays. And in this case, it happened 28 out of 30 cases. Now, each invoice had a statement that said that nothing of value was given to a radio station or its employees in exchange for airplay. And it's not illegal for that to happen. A station can actually play a song that it was paid for as long as it states that fact and it says who paid for it. That's the whole thing about independent radio promotion. Different promoters have different relationships with a different number of stations. So there's not one promoter that does the whole country. There'll be a promoter for the Northeast, for the Southeast, for the Southwest. But it turns out that this is a lot more vital to radio stations than it's ever been. That's because most radio stations, especially in smaller markets, are really struggling. And that's because of a big decrease in advertising revenue. These payments are another income stream and something that they really need. The radio stations would play these songs, but they would play them between midnight and 6 a.m. when they had the fewest number of listeners. So you might think, well, what's the deal with that? It turns out that all that does is improve the chart position because a play is a play is a play. It doesn't matter what time of the day that it actually happened. So why is this important? We're seeing a trend where artists are often breaking into the top 10, but they're only there for about a week. And then they suddenly plummet way, way down the charts or they disappear completely. As a result, many see the chart position as reflective of a successful marketing campaign rather than a sign of the actual popularity of the song and the artist. Now, of course, the charts reflect more than just radio airplay. They also look at streaming and they also look at sales. So it's a combination of all of these. However, an artist can actually game the charts a little bit by pushing physical product to its fan base or its fan club. Every sale equates to about 1,500 streams. So you can see how sales have an increased effect on the charts. Again, what you have here is chart success but not necessarily a measure of the song or the artist's popularity. In the end, ticket sales are the most honest reflection of an artist's popularity, as they can't be gamed as easily as record sales and radio airplay. Are charts really necessary anymore? It's looking more and more like that's absolutely the case. If you have any comments or questions, you can send them to questions at bobbyosinski.com. 
Also, I'm pleased to announce that the fifth edition of my Recording Engineer's Handbook is now available. It's totally updated and includes new sections on the latest cutting-edge recording technology, multiple ways to mic over 70 different instruments, a new chapter on recording immersive audio, new hitmaker engineer interviews, and much more. Get your copy at a special discounted price at go.bobbyosinski.com forward slash recording dash engineer. That's go.bobbyosinski.com forward slash recording dash engineer. You can also find it on Amazon and Apple Books. And remember, you can learn all about the latest in music, audio, and production news when you sign up for my newsletter at bobbyosinski.com. There you'll also find out about openings for my latest online classes and special events. That's bobbyosinski.com. Now, we all hate software and plugin subscriptions, but they might be a necessary evil that we'll have to live with. Developing software and plugins is really hard. There's a lot of development costs and a lot of marketing costs. And for a software developer, a one-time sale means that they're constantly in sales mode. Subscription makes it easier for them because they can do new development because they have this steady cash flow. It can be better for users as well because you get free updates and bug fixes that are more timely or supposedly more timely and access to more plugins just from that one subscription. There are updates that happen on a fairly regular basis if you have a perpetual license. Perpetual license means that you bought it once and that's all you need to do is buy it once. Now, that being said, if there's a big update, like there's a new operating system that requires a rewrite of the particular plugin, then you'll usually have to pay for it again, normally at a lesser price though. Many developers have been really slow to port to Mac Silicon, for instance. And the thing about it is, all developers have access to the same info at exactly the same time, so nobody gets any preferences there. And as we know, there are many digital audio workstations that are slow to add features that are available on other platforms for a long time. Today, there are so many alternatives for just about any kind of plugin that you won't have a problem replacing one if you don't like their update or subscription policy. The problem is that your recalls will require a lot more work as you'll have to replace those plugins that you don't have access to anymore. So you have to ask yourself whether it's worth the hassle just to save a little money. My guest this week is Tony Zimmerman, who as a kid would go to work with his dad, who was the manager of the Kennedy Center Concert Hall in Washington, D.C. There he'd hang out backstage, where he was lucky enough to see every major hard rock and metal show in the 70s and 80s, and make many musical friends over the years. Fast forward to 2023, and Tony's company, Knuckle Bonds, has been recognized worldwide for the past two decades as the leading creators of high-end and handcrafted collectibles that feature iconic moments in rock history, as well as music legends. Knuckle Bonds creates licensed memorabilia for Pink Floyd, Queen, Alice Cooper, Metallica, Ozzy Osbourne, ACDC, Iron Maiden, Kiss, Guns N' Roses, just to name a few, and detail of each handcrafted limited edition statue for collectors of licensed properties. The company's commitment to fine craftsmanship is showcased in the artistry and detail of each handcrafted limited edition statue created for collectors of licensed properties. Think of it as rock meets art. During the interview, we spoke about growing up backstage during rock concerts, his background in 3D animation, problem with distributing custom beverages, 3D vinyl, and much more. 
I spoke with Tony via Zoom from his office in California. Tell me about your background and getting into this, because I know there's a good story there. So growing up, like many of us, you know, if you're old enough, you know, radio to find music that wasn't considered, you know, popular music was kind of tough. So you found it with older, older family members and things like that. So when I was in the third grade, uh, my parents decided that I needed to go to Catholic school. So uh, this particular Catholic school didn't have a bus service. So I needed a way to get to school. They were both working parents. And they hired on the neighbor kid who had just graduated high school to be my, you know, ride to and from school. And he had a 1968 Dodge truck with an eight track player. So the guy named Ronnie White played things like the first Sabbath records are coming out about then and the James game and yes and stuff like that. So that was my soundtrack going to and from school. And of course, <clears throat> If that's something you're going to like, right, it, it hits you at that bone marrow level. So, yeah, those those first records is kind of where it started the, the interest in what would be considered, you know, heavy metal or progressive rock. I think then there, <clears throat> there weren't even the genres for that then. There was, you know, hard rock, metal, Sabbath. You know, Sabbath was just starting to do it. So the whole idea of metal or anything like that, it was just, these are songs that you're not going to hear on the radio. So you have to find and buy them yourself. That was the genre. Now you've got every metal, black metal, bathroom metal, lawn chair metal. <laughs> <laughs> but back then it was just, you know, you had R&B and you had rock music. And then you had rock music you wouldn't hear on the radio, which is generally anything that was heavier or, you know, considered progressive. So that's kind of where that's where it started. And then uh, I turned about nine years old. My dad was the director of the Navy band and he joined the military young enough that he could actually retire at that age. He was in his thirties and he took a job in theater management. He was the manager of a place in Washington, D.C. called the Constitution Hall, which was considered pretty upscale, you know, 2,800 seat venue. So a concert hall, but not, you know, it's not a basketball arena. So being eight, nine, I would just have to go into work with him a lot. So by default, I'm just backstage at all the amazing stuff happening in the early 70s. And from there, he went on to manage the Kennedy Center. So now it was not only rock music, a lot of culture and, you know, weird experimental stuff. So since the time I was eight or nine years old, I've just been was hanging out backstage, being part of the music scene. And, the, you know, the stagehands were my uncles and babysitters keeping me out of trouble that was the that was the deal you do whatever you want unless i get a bad report or you're in the way or being a pain in the ass so yeah. i was careful because i knew how good i had it did you have any interaction with the artists yeah sometimes it was being so little and it, i was there so much it's not it's weird it's not something i really sought out it's not like i didn't care about it but it was like well you know if i'm that's not cool. I'm going to be a pain in the ass. I, I just got to blend in around here. So I was the kid just blended in stage, stage right. But yeah, I saw a lot of amazing, amazing stuff firsthand. You know, Freddie, 
Freddie Mercury and Brian May had to walk by me to go on the stage in 1975 for that show they did at the, at the Kennedy Center. I was too little to go out and have a seat. So what they would do is the before the house lights would go down, the head stage hand would take a like one of those old plastic school chairs we had in grade school. Yeah. And he'd go and sit it behind the stack and all the everybody was still just, you know, taking their cabinets and pounding, you know, stacking them up on the side of the stage. Not now where they're all hung and everything was beautiful. So I would sit behind the stack, like right up against it, so the crowd couldn't see me. So yeah, the house lights were getting ready to go down and <laughs> the stagehand, his name's Bull, and to say, "Excuse me, fellas," and he has to just move Freddie and Brian out of the way, and he carries this chair, and they're all excited to go on it. Excuse me, guys, what the hell's this? <laughs> Fill up. He goes and sets the seat down, and there's a big metal door that closes really slow, and I can I can just kind of I'm like, do I want to look around? Yeah. So I'm looking around, and Freddie and Brian are going, like, what in the hell is this kid? <laughs> And then the house lights go down. And so that's how I would see shows. So I have no hearing in my right ear. <laughs> I bet. That's <laughs> a bear. But yeah, you know, I could have had an amazing autograph set and set of stage passes and stuff. And because I was there so much and it was so just, you know, it's what you did. I didn't keep track of any of that stuff. And, you know, I'm kicking myself now. Okay, so you were there because you almost had to be, right? Because you're there. With that was your dad. it. I, you know, last key kid coming home. But if if you know he'd get off work after a show and everything loaded out, you know, two three in the morning. Yeah. So I'd have to, I'd just have to hang out. That's that's what I did. Did do you appreciate the music at the time? Oh, the the heavier stuff for sure. Because I mean, like I say, that's that's something you're going to feel at that DNA level. But you know. I had what was called the skeleton key to the Kennedy Center. And the, the Kennedy Center in Washington, D.C. is actually three venues in that one big white building that you've seen with the gold columns, you know? Yeah. So there's the concert hall where he was the manager. And then there's the Eisenhower Theater, which is where theater and musicals would be. And then the opera house would be for ballet and, and things like that. So with the skeleton key, I could go anywhere. It was, you know, unlocked every door. So I would just be bored and bop through the houses, you know, and I might see Hal Holbrook, you know, being Mark Twain and then, you know, walk by the Bolshoi. Oh, there's Brzezhnikov. Cool. Hey, look, you, that guy's pretty fit. Look at him. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I want to say I had an appreciation for it. I mean, there's no way you can when you're 10, 11 years old. Yeah, but, that's what I mean. Yeah. But I knew who, when ELP released pictures at an exhibition, I knew that was Mikorsky's music. I had knowledge of the appreciation bit. ELP helped with that, with the classical stuff. And, and yes, I was, I was excited to go see her in Copeland right to spring and stuff on his 80th, 80th birthday was a big gala there. That was cool. Lots of different people at that thing. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So then what brought you to get into merch? So I was in, um, been in 3D animation, TV, film, games. Knuckle Bones is 20 years old. I've been in the 3D business when, such as it existed, you know, my entire career. So started with that and then was in that for a decade plus and looking for something new. And I looked at just the whole collectibles category. I was just, I love the collectibles category. Anything 
Rankin Bass or Claymation growing up, anything 3D was like the coolest. So we, I like the category for monsters, TV, film, pop culture stuff. And there were some things done for music and the, the toy level. But I just thought, you know, there's the rock music fans and, you know, those fan bases, you know, they're every bit as passionate as the Star Wars camp or the Marvel camp or Spidey pick, whatever, whatever property you want. But nobody's really focusing on anything at that level, you know, for these these fans who were we thought maybe they're underserved and there's a business there. That was kind of the idea, a high-end collectible focused on music fans. And this is about 2003. So about then, that, that's when everybody's starting to get comfortable putting their credit card number in a web field. That's the beginning of direct-to-consumer, really. That, you know, it, it existed before that, but that's when it starts to be you know, more viable, less trendy. You know, this is a practice that people are going to do. So uh, we've got the, okay, this is the, this is what we're going to do. These are the things we're going to create. And the business model is direct to consumer. We never approached Walmart or Target, probably never will. You know, our stuff's not big box. It's a specialty fine arts item. And that was, that was it really just combining those things to put together what Knucklebones is. Then we had to figure out what product do you start with? You know, what artist? Because you, you, you're going to make you're going to make a series for super music fans around the world, and you got to start with somewhere. So we, you know, that was a lot of a lot of thinking went into that. And you, the obvious would be, well, you would start with try to start with Jimi Hendrix or Beatles or Zeppelin or something like that. And, you know, we we thought, well, we could probably through you know previous involvement in music and venues, it could probably get to the right person to pitch the idea. But if we start with Zeppelin or Jimi Hendrix, it might be successful, but have we really proved anything? Because it might've been successful just because it's Zeppelin, Jimi Hendrix. It's not a sustainable category. We, we wouldn't prove anything. So we looked at what's super cool, but maybe a little more uh, selective or with you know a passionate fan base. And then we that's how we arrived at uh, Randy Rhodes because Randy was you know Randy has Randy freaks you know guitar players that they don't like guitar players they like Randy Rhodes you know and that's everything's from Randy and has this passionate fan base around the world you know in Japan you know, Randy's as big if not bigger than here so we got a hold of the Rhodes family and pitched you know the whole idea that I just described to you and they they thought it was cool and really appreciative that we would think you know to start the whole series with Randy uh, we did, and it was uh, a great success. And 20 years later, here we are. 20 years in a row, by the way. <laughs> didn't take didn't take any didn't take any years off in a row. That says a lot. But uh, then again, you're direct to consumer online, so COVID probably didn't affect you all that much. Yeah, I mean, yeah, we were we were direct to consumer before direct to consumer was cool. I mean, but we do have distribution, you know throughout your internationally it's important because while we can ship anywhere in the world from our u.s warehouse in some cases it's cost prohibitive for people because it's a heavy five eight pounds shipping weight for a statute between shipping and duties you know somebody in europe can pay what the cost of the statue is in in shipping now many people do the super fans anytime something new there's people that have bought two of everything we've done for 
you know, 20 years, those, the, the collector elite, I don't want to say they don't care, but you know, if it's something new, they, they want it and, and they'll buy it direct from us. But we have, you can see our stuff in specialty retail around the world. We just keep it close to home here in the, in the U.S. So you mentioned Randy Rhodes. I was you know, looking through your site, and that's one of the things that jumped out at me, that uh, Bon Scott was another one. And I thought, well, that's kind of interesting that there'd be something just for Bon Scott. But I guess a true ACDC fan, that's something special to them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I mean, the, the first statue we did was Slash. Slash, you know, there was no... GNR was very still very acrimonious, the, the relationships there. He was in Velvet Revolver. So when we were doing the project and it came time to do the back of the packaging, typically as a bio, just, you know, of the artist. And, you know, I, I said, uh, my assumption is you just want to focus on Velvet Revolver. And he said, no, I don't mention I was ever in a band. It's just such a pain in the ass. And, you know, I'm Slash. I don't need, you know... <laughs> He wasn't being uh, pompous about it, but he's like, I'm Slash. I'm, it's going to do fine. <laughs> the Slash brand is all you need. And he was right. It's, you know, one of our best, one of our best sellers to this day. I'm curious, how difficult is it to get licenses on some of these? Because let's face it, there are many bands and artists that are, that play that stuff very close to the vest. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's certainly easier 20 years in than it was, you know, when we were doing our first handful of projects, typically people know what, especially in the music industry, they know who Knucklebones is and what it is uh, we do. So most of the licensing is inbound now where the bands are coming here and we've, we're not a huge company. We can only do so many products a year. So it's, but we are a business. We have to make money. So we look at, okay, what do we think the product's, What's the slate look like for this year where we can do the best things that fans want? And uh, that's so easier today than it was 20 years ago. But you're right. And there's still some artists that, you know, we've approached that for whatever reason, not necessarily anything to do with us, just not comfortable with the category who will pass or the business side of it. The ask is just, you know, not doesn't make good business sense. So you're in a very distinct niche because it's mostly hard rock and metal. I didn't see anything varied beyond that too much. Well, we got Biggie Small, oh, you know, okay. yeah, Debbie Harry, Elvis in the Army. So we've, you know, we've gone out outside of outside of rock. It's just the rock audience, especially the harder acts, typically not a lot of, you know, not a ton of stuff has been made for them. And, you know, they're a passionate group that's underserved. That's a really good combination of things. And if we make something that's cool, you know, with the, the first thing we did with King Diamond, King Diamond had never allowed anything figure-based to be done for. And, you know, well, if you look at the Facebook footprint at the time, King Diamond was like at a half a million on the official King page, you know, versus ACDC, which is 38 million. There's lots of ACDC stuff out there not much for King Diamond and, you know, the fans really showed up. That was one of the more popular releases that year. But, you know, the, the answer sometimes initially will be no. And what we tell fans is like, when are you going to do this? When are you going to do that? The answer would be yes at some point. And when, when, and if fans want it, we'll make it, you know, we're the ones to make it happen ultimately. 
So you you specialize in in the the statues for the most part, and how did you come to that as a product? I just like the category, and I'm I'm a trained you know my training it was in fine arts all the way up until you know working in 3D and digital you know as a profession. So I had all the fine arts training, everything, and all the chops. And it was just a matter of okay, now you, to produce a prototype, there's a certain level of of uh, trade craft that goes into that. But when you now have to produce it maybe up to 3,000 times and it has to be ETH one, ETH one handmade and has to be, has to be faithful to the, you know, what the color master is. That's the, that's the tough part. Then there's import and export. So to get that statue to your shelf or desk or whatever, there's yeah, a lot that, a lot that goes into that. <laughs> yeah. But you've expanded beyond the statues though. I saw that there were lots of other products that you had the typical apparel, for instance, but I, I also saw beverages, which was interesting. So tell me about that. The beverage, the idea there was the same thinking that, eh, there's some rock beer, you know, that's been done over the last eight years, five, eight years. You know, can we do what Knucklebones is in the beverage industry and create a, you know, a series? And, you know, we, we embarked on that and, you know, we proved the point. The fans are there and they want it. The issue with the beer category is all of the things that we can do and as knuckle bones where we control other than when it goes into a container and it's on the way to your shipping, we don't ship it to you, but you know, we design it. We oversee the manufacturing, we see you know, distribution and sales. We make sure things are right. In the beer, there's the way the beer laws are, we're, there's so many things that we can't control and so many rules to say what we can and can't do while the products have been great. The beers have been great. The, the business side and all we know how to do is just, it's so legislated out uh, because of the three tier beer system. It makes it less cool than, uh, than it could be. So I'm not sure how much more beer we're going to be doing. So we can make more money. We can't make more time. That's what we say. What do we, what do we make our bets on? And ultimately, if, if you, you say, well, we're not going to give you the next ACDC IPA, fans would go, well, you know, darn. If we say we're not going to do, you know, another Angus and Malcolm Young statue set, then Knucklebones fans are pissed. <laughs> so focus on, focus on what got you here. That's kind of where we are with it. I saw you also have a vinyl category, a 3D vinyl which I scratched my head on for a little bit and now, but it makes perfect sense because your background is in 3d. So of course, why not exploit that? The 3d vinyl, it, there was a few things there. So we were, and it's just, it was one of those meant to be things. We were uh, at an event. We're actually out seeing fans, which we need to do more of. We're here in the silo, just making what we make and just to get out and hang with people and let them see our stuff and talk about music. We don't get to do, as much of that as we should and we had done some event and then we went to the big trade show in new york where all the all the buyers are and i heard this comment twice it's hey we see what you do that's so great you're focusing on music it's cool you're doing things for artists that maybe nobody would do a big toy company wouldn't do but i'll never buy any of it i'm like well what was i'm sorry what was the last thing (laughs) good good this is really great but i'm never gonna why not I just not into the figure category. I never bought a bobblehead, 
never bought an action figure. I'm never going to buy one. It's just not, I don't want, it's not into the category. So I heard that, you know, a couple times in the span of two weeks from like fans and then from some buyers, some international buyers. I'm like, well, we got to fix this because we got a super fan who wants something. They just don't want, you know, the, the rock icons category, the category. So that was the idea of 3D vinyl. So we came up with the idea of, okay, what could we do for that fan? Everybody likes album art. You know, it was how we connected when we grew up. Typically, you've had a T-shirt with the album cover on it. That's mostly what music merchandising is, right? Stamping out that stuff. So we said, what if we came up with a collectibles line that's based on the album art? And they're like, well... That might work, but the whole, you know, I don't have something to display it. I don't have a man or a person cave. Uh, and they said, well, if we do album art, what if we were to allow you to wall mount? We gave you the hardware you know, right when it came out of the box. And they went, okay, now you got me. Because now I can put it on the wall. It's cool. I don't need a special shelf or a place for it. So that was that was the eye for 3D vinyl. So I'm going to, I don't know when this is going to air, but. Here's the latest 3D vinyl that's going to drop Friday. So this is the Ghost second second record, and that's the that's the album art. Oh, yeah, yeah. Here is 3D vinyl here. And I mean, this one's perfect because that art is, you know, the art's trying to fool you with perspective and come out of the plane there. Yeah, yeah. On the back, let me see if I can get it to catch the light. So that's actually what is, it's etched on the back. And the certificate goes back here. So that was 3D vinyl. So that was that was designed out of need. And then we took that one step further and said, all the great rock tours over the last 50 years have had, you know, iconic stage props. We have what's called on tour. So we put it in a road case. Here's the thousand pound Hell's Bell. Yeah, yeah. 1980. Complete complete with the mallet at scale. Awesome. Wow. Coming in a road case, even. I love it. And a, a road, yeah, and the road case has, we won't be able to see it on camera, but I'll just talk about the detail. The road case will have whatever the tour itinerary was for that particular tour and the set list. So right there, really small set list from 1980. It's a handwritten set list. And where's the tour itinerary? Yeah. There's what the, uh, the tour itinerary was. There. Yeah. You're not seeing it on camera, but the detail is there. So if you buy it, put your scopes on it, it's, you can read every last little detail on it. The road cases, you know, that's like I said, I grew up backstage. So I was causing trouble riding in road cases and pushing them around and jumping on them and doing stuff that I wasn't supposed to do. Yeah, yeah, right, right. Yeah, road cases were like the source of entertainment. Is there one particular product that maybe you always wanted to do and, and haven't yet? Well, we've got a product that is done and was very close to release. And uh, unfortunately, Eddie Van Halen passed away before we could get everything buttoned up on all the approval side. But the statue is completely finished. You know, Eddie, 1978, first tour with Sabbath, the white very sparkly shirt, maroon slacks, the white, the white Frankenstrat and the, the big 
his backline of speakers and then the speaker bomb thing that he had that he had made. So it's all ready. So that's one uh, for sure. Haven't gotten to the stones yet. You know, we'll get there. I happen to be wearing one right here. We need to do a Mike Muir at some point. Suicidal. But yeah, it's the answer is, yeah, we're going to get there. If If it's something that fans want, eventually, you know, the rights will be available and they'll be, you know, at, at terms that we can make, we make, make happen. You know, our thing's a limited edition deal. So there's a finite um, amount of money that's going to be transacted on any product. So the fact that it's, you know, one band or another, we're only looking for 3000 fans for anything we do ever worldwide. Are they numbered? Yep. Hand numbered. Let's see if, if Randy has a number here. I'll find you something that has these. That, this Randy, I've got here in the prototype. I remember talking to a in the '90s a big uh, bootlegger who made his living bootlegging, you know, various concerts. Basically, he would do that were unlicensed. But his big trick was always to do a limited number and to number them all, and that way he could charge twice as much. That's what he told me anyway. But it made sense. Yeah, it's a limited edition. We never made more than 3,000 of anything. And it has a certificate that's uh, screen printed on the statue base and hand numbered. So it's screen printed actually on the statue. So it's not a separate piece of paper that you can lose or it would be easier to counterfeit. That's on every statue we, we do. And that's, that's, a hand, that's a hand numbering. The fact that it's a limited edition and then you know once it's gone, we don't re-release is what can you know drive the value up and typically if you see our stuff on the secondary market it's it's always above the price that it sold sometimes you can find a jimmy page a stormtrooper which was a short run i think we only did 750 of those you know that'll be thousands of dollars on the market today but you know we don't control that the fans decide what it's what it's worth in that you know that vein we we don't do you see any trends in the business that either surprise you or something that you think that you should jump on? So over 20 years, the big, the big trend or, you know, things, way things have migrated, you know, at the beginning, after we did the first couple of products, we thought, you know, to get entree to artists, maybe we'll just, we'll make some contacts at the labels and, you know, maybe get to multiple artists that way versus having to go to a particular merchandising company 20 years ago, there was a middle class, a low and middle class for merchandising. Now it's all been snapped up by the big live nations and Sony's and universal musics. Back then, you know, the record companies wouldn't give us the time of day. Merchandising to them was still something they left to the bands that didn't complain because they didn't make any money selling records. <laughs> give the t-shirt business to the bands and let them tour and, they were happy to just give that money to the bands. Now, there's these same companies have had to go and pay a lot of money to acquire those same rights they used to just leave to the bands because that's where the money is being made. Sure. On merchandising and, uh, and touring. Well, this has been an education for me. It's very cool. All right. Last question then, Tony. You've been in business for a while, so obviously this is something that's kind of right up your alley. What's the best piece of advice, business advice maybe, that maybe you learned along the way or maybe somebody imparted to you you know the way the best business if if you want to make 
if you want to be in the creative arts or merchandising or anything like that, make something you want to buy yourself. Make something you want. If you make something you want, chances are there's going to be a few thousand people around the world that are going to want the same thing. If you're making something you want, you, you know, you don't have to second guess yourself. So that's, that's what I say all the time. Ooh, I like that. I can't wait to have that shirt or I can't wait. You know, I can't wait for the, the sculpt to be finished or whatever. Yeah. Do, do something you would want to buy yourself. That'd be the best thing I could say. If it's something you want and like, you know, to make best effort on that is no effort at all. It's easy. You can find out more about Tony and Knuckle Bonds at knucklebonds.com. That's Knuckle Bonds, K-N-U-C-K-L-E-B-O-N-Z, knucklebonds.com. Thanks for listening and being in my inner circle. Remember, if you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyosinski.com. Remember that you can learn all about the latest in music, audio, and production news when you sign up for my newsletter at bobbyosinski.com. There you'll also find out about openings for my latest online classes and special events. That's bobbyosinski.com. To listen to the episodes of Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle, go to bobbyosinski.com and select the podcast tab, or go to bobbyoinnercircle.com, or you can find it on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Stitcher, Mixcloud, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Deezer, TuneIn Radio, Radio Public, and Podbean. At bobbyosinski.com and bobbyoinnercircle.com, you'll also find a sign-in form for my newsletter and for alerts for new podcasts. This is Bobby Osinski. I will see you next time.